Welcome to Alphabet Soup, a podcast where we're going to work our way through a wide variety of biblical topics using the alphabet. Our goal, of course, is to understand the Bible better, but we also want to find ways in which Scripture applies to our daily lives. So with that intro, let's get to it. If I say miracle in the Bible, what's the first one that comes to mind? It's probably from the Gospels, right? Feeding of the 5,000 or walking on the water or calming the storm. What's the first biblical miracle that comes to mind for you? If you grew up in Sunday school like I did, you've got a whole bunch of miracles in your head. Uh, Some of them, probably most of the ones that we think of immediately are from the Gospels. Things that Jesus did, calming the storm, feeding the 5,000, healing the leper, those kinds of things. But there are some great miracles. Is is that a bad term to use? There are some great miracles in the Old Testament too. And I think Elisha did the most engaging ones, uh, making the axe head float, uh, making the poisonous stew uh, edible. But but miracles have more to them than we often think about, and that's what we're going to do today. M is for miracles. We're going to talk about some of the key features, what makes a miracle, how they operate, what classifications they fall into, and then see if we can come to any conclusions about what, if any, uh, role miracles have in the experience of the believer today. What are the miracles? Because at at the very beginning, we have to do matters of definition. And there are three ways of understanding the miracles. And the first is that a miracle is the manifestation of a little known or unknown law. It does not deviate from the laws of nature. It just isn't well known or is unknown. So for example, you'll recall that in Luke chapter 5, the disciples caught a whole bunch of fish. They'd been fishing, getting nothing. Jesus came along and said, put down your nets on the other side of the boat. And they did. And they caught just loads and loads and loads of fishes. Was that outside the laws of nature? And this view says, no, we don't understand perhaps why suddenly there was a large gathering of fish there. Was there something going on? Was there a change in water temperature? Was there the sudden appearance of whatever it is those fish eat? But it was just it was just something that happens within nature that we may not understand. Or it's something that we do understand, and what we call a miracle is just the timing of those things. I long time ago I read that explanation for the uh, ten plagues in the book of Exodus. The first plague is turning water to blood. And this author suggested that it was not blood. It appeared as blood. It was blood red in color. Hence, the water is turned to blood. After that comes the frogs. Why? Because, and he suggested it was a red tide. I don't know if you know what that is, but if you've ever been, for example, in Southern California, you know what a red tide is. It is a water temperature change that that causes a sudden growth in a particular kind of algae that is remarkably red. I've seen it. It's surprising how red it is. And that drove the frogs out of the water onto the land, where eventually they died. And what happens with a bunch of dead frogs? The gnats breed. And after the gnats comes the flies. And he worked his way through the ten plagues and described how each one of them came as a result of the one in front of it. A miracle is not something outside the laws of nature. It is something within 
that we just don't understand well or is unknown to us, but it is natural. Albeit rare, it is natural. Now, that sounds pretty good if you pick and choose your miracles carefully, but what are you going to do with a man born blind, okay? There is no natural explanation for that. Or the feeding of the 5,000 with a handful of loaves and fish. There are some things that clearly cannot be explained that way. So the second explanation for miracles is that it is a, this is a little technical here, but it is a suspension of the laws of nature. Going back to Elisha, he was out with a bunch of his Bible college students, and a guy had borrowed an axe to cut wood. The axe head flew off the handle and went into the river and sank, and he was all upset because it was a borrowed axe. Now what are we going to do? And Elisha uh, made the axe head float, and it is suggested by those who advocate for this second category that miracles are really a suspension of the laws of nature, that God at that point, at that time, and in that place only, suspended the normal laws of gravity or, or the density of water vis-a-vis the axe head or something, that in that locale only, the laws of nature were suspended. And again, That may work to explain that particular miracle. But what are you going to do when you get to Joshua 10? And there is the long day. You remember that uh, Israel was engaged in battle. I don't remember who the enemy was. But this battle went on and on and on and on. And they were running out of daylight. And so if Josh, they discovered if Joshua held his hands up in the air, the sun remained in place. And so it says they supported his hands and they fought and defeated the enemy that day, that, that the day was extended. Did the earth stop rotating? Did God suspend the laws of nature as he did with the law of gravity with Elisha and the axe head? Did he suspend uh, the laws of nature so that the earth stopped rotating? You may have read, but there's absolutely no uh, evidence from you know, how astronomers can go back and figure out all this stuff. There is no evidence that the earth ever stood still in terms of its rotation for any length of time beyond. It just didn't happen. So what we're going to do is we're going to go on to number three, and that is a miracle is not within the laws of nature. It is not the suspension of the laws of nature. It is an overriding of the laws of nature by divine decree and action. And so the laws of nature continue except with regard to this specific situation. The axe head, God overrode, is that is that the way to put that? God overrode the laws of nature so that that axe head floated. And we don't know how, but he suspended the day. The earth did not stop rotating, but he suspended time for that battle. Thus, a miracle is supernatural. It's not anti-natural. It is supernatural. It is something that God does outside the laws of nature. Now, that becomes important when we come to the next question. A miracle is a supernatural event. Who is supernatural? Who is more powerful than nature? And the answer is God. So God does 
supernatural things. The problem, problem, the situation is that Satan is also supernatural. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul is talking about the uh, tribulation and the beginning of the tribulation, and he says in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. The beginning of the tribulation and the coming of the lawless one happens by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Satan is also supernatural. He can work outside the laws of nature. Do you remember the first of the twelve plagues, uh, ten plagues we referred to? The water turns to blood. Now, was it literally blood-like flows in your veins, or was it blood in appearance, and that was the best way to describe it? I don't know. I don't think it matters. The point is that you may recall that, that Pharaoh's wise guys were able to duplicate that miracle, that the second miracle was frogs. They were able to duplicate that miracle. Pharaoh's men were clearly not operating under the authority and power of God, but they could work under the authority and power of Satan. This makes me think of the passage in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13, talking about bad guys. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan can do the supernatural as well. Now, from this point forward, we're going to restrict our discussion to miracles done by God. There are only these handful of examples in the Bible where Satan does or will do miracles that are called false miracles. And so from this point on, we're just going to focus on the divine miracles, those done by God. And we move on by asking, what is the purpose of miracles? The first purpose and the most important purpose is to glorify God, to give him the praise. They always point to the, uh, to the power and the glory and the plan of God. They bring him the glory. Pick a miracle, any miracle, and, and see it in that perspective because that's the first thing that should be noticed. The second purpose for the miracles is to accomplish what he wants to see accomplished and why he works within the laws of nature sometimes, and why sometimes he overrides the laws of nature, I can't answer. But he wants to accomplish his special purpose, and he does that by. And, and pick a miracle, and you'll see, him, you'll see that that is the case. The third reason for miracles is to meet the needs of people. Israel's exodus it says that he heard Israel's cry and their misery at their mistreatment and responded by, by drawing them out, by bringing them out of Egypt. And he did that through a process of 10 miraculous plagues. Now, there's a fascinating discussion there. Why was that necessary? Why did it take 10? Why was Pharaoh's heart hardened? But we don't have time to go there. Maybe, maybe we'll find another letter of the alphabet where that fits. But the purpose of the ten plagues was to meet a need that Israel had, and that was to get out of Israel, uh, to get out of Egypt. In the Gospels, 
uh, compassion. It, it met human needs. He heals the leper. He restores the sight of the man born blind, the woman who hemorrhaged. He meets these needs. The hungry, the 5,000 who are hungry after listening to him preach and teach. Three purposes, to give God glory, to accomplish his special purposes in the arc of history, and to meet special needs of the people, whoever those people may be at that point in time. So now we can move on. We've seen what miracles are. They are God overriding the laws of nature. We've seen that he does them, that Satan also can, but, but that seems to be a handful of circumstances. And we have seen uh, the purpose of those miracles. Now, let's, let's do one of those three by five cards things in our head, in our imagination. Let's take all the miracles of the Bible, write each one on a three by five card, set it on the desk, and start pushing these things around and seeing if the miracles fall into any special categories, into any classification system. And I think if we were to do that, I think we'll pretty quickly see that there are, in fact, different classifications, different types of miracles, that they fall into groups. The first way we can categorize the miracles is by identifying them as either direct or indirect. Direct miracles are those which God does directly. That is to say, there is no human agent. Examples of that would include the flood, and whether you consider that a local or universal flood doesn't make any difference. God first caused all the animals, a male and female, to come to Noah so he could put them on the ark. Then he caused it to rain for 40 days. He uh, created a, a situation in which the animals could survive on that ark for about a year and then for the water uh, to, to flow away. The miracle at Babel, where up until that point, the entire uh, humanity had spoken one language and suddenly they all speak multiple languages and then God forcibly, if you will, spread them over all of the earth. Um, how about the burning bush where Moses spoke to God in and through the bush, which burned but was not consumed. The miracle of the incarnation. The miracle of the resurrection, where the stone was rolled away. Uh, in Philippi, the earthquake that rocked all the uh, jail doors open so that they could. They did not escape, but they could have. Those are direct miracles. God did them without the involvement of any human agent. And so on the other side, we have indirect miracles where a human agent is involved. So into that category, we will put the 10 plagues. Moses goes to Pharaoh and announces that now this plague is going to happen. Uh, Pharaoh would have thought, okay, Moses is doing this. Um, all of Christ's miracles, and you may think, yeah, but he was God. He was God, but he was in his humanity. And so those are indirect miracles. God does them through his son, the incarnate Jesus Christ. Elisha raises the widow's son. The walls of Jericho fell down, and there the human agent is the entire uh, Jewish army. How about Acts 2 in Pentecost, where uh, the apostles are enabled to speak in languages not known to them? We have two categories, direct and indirect. We're going to come back to this because I think, I think it's significant and worth a closer look will do that in part two. That's the first way to classify them. Another way would be to identify those miracles that are revelatory. And by that we mean 
miracles which God used to communicate truth to man. Remember Revelation, the communication of truth from God to man, of things man could not know through his five senses. It takes a miraculous word of God. Um, Our definition there leads us to Mount Sinai, right? And back to the burning bush where God communicates miraculously. So that is both a direct miracle and a revelatory miracle. Uh, Direct because there was no human agent involved and revelatory because he was giving Moses a revelation. Another example is the book of Revelation, where John starts out by saying he was on the island of Patmos, and God came to him and revealed to him content, things which were, things which are, and things which will be, and revealed those to him through a series of visions. In Isaiah chapter 6, the word of the Lord came to me and said, and, and in fact, All of the prophets received revelations from God, thus saith the Lord. That's a miraculous communication from God to man. Um, In addition to revelatory, where God is communicating truth miraculously, we would have the gift of knowledge. This is rare. We don't have a lot of examples of this. But it is where God gives an individual specific knowledge about a specific event that they could not otherwise know. Um, perhaps the best known example of that is in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira. Do you remember that? I think it's in chapters like five or six in there someplace. I'm not sure. Where Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of property and bring the money to the church and say, here's all the money from that property. And Peter asks Ananias, he's the one that comes first. Peter asks Ananias, is this all the money? Yeah, this is all the money we got from the sale. He's lying. It's not. They withheld some of it. And Peter rebukes him and said, listen, dude, it was your money. You could have kept all of it. You could have kept some of it. That would have been fine. But instead, what you did is come and lie to the Holy Spirit and represent this portion as all of the money. And immediately, uh, Ananias is struck dead. Now, uh, we can we can classify that miracle in a number of different ways, but right now I want you to see it as a gift of knowledge. There is no way that Peter could have known that that was not all the money, except God allowed him to see it. You remember the situation with David and Bathsheba, and he had successfully hidden that, and nobody knew except God. And so God sends Nathan the prophet to see Daniel. And, and Nathan tells David a story about two men, next-door neighbors, one of them very wealthy with large flocks and herds, and the other one very poor, and he has one little lamb, and the rich guy is going to throw a banquet for a friend of his who's in town, and he steals the one little lamb from his neighbor and slaughters it uh, for this banquet. And David is enraged at this injustice and said, that man must be severely punished. And Nathaniel points his bony finger at David and says, thou art that man. How did Nathan know that? The gift of God, the gift of knowledge was given to Nathan. There aren't very many examples like that. Those are the two that come to mind. And frankly, maybe if I scoured my way through the Bible, I would find others. But That's what we mean by the gift of knowledge. So there are revelatory gifts that communicate truth, and there are revelatory gifts that communicate knowledge. Now, there's another category that we will call sign gifts, but we're going to do that in the second portion 
of this podcast because frankly, it's going to take us a little more time. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to stop here with our classifications of direct and indirect and revelatory gifts, those gifts that stand out because they either communicate truth or they communicate uh, a a specific fact, a, a data point, if you will. And in part two now, we'll go on and talk about what are sign gifts because that turns out to be a very important category. Once again, please communicate with me through uh, either our email address, which is abcsouppodcast dot uh, at gmail dot com, abcsouppodcast at gmail dot com, or through our uh, Facebook page, which is Alphabet Soup. Love to hear from you. Thank you very much, folks. Let's move on to part two. Mm-hmm.